Well, good morning. How many of you are watching that, the sayings from different uh, Christmas? The only one I knew was, keep the change, you filthy animal. That's the only one I knew. (laughs) Home alone. All right. Good to see you this morning. Merry Christmas. And if you have your bulletins, we would like to ask that if you are a guest today, that you would please fill out the registration guest form and rip that off and drop it in the offering plate. You can read about the upcoming events. I'm going to let you do that today. Just want to invite you back for tonight. Completely different program tonight, different message. And uh, we would look forward to having you uh, celebrate Christmas Eve with us at 6.30. Would love to have you come and be a part. And we are going to make it a family-friendly uh, where the families come and be, sit together and uh, share Christmas that way with us. All right. Let's stand and welcome somebody around you to church.
Father, we, you are our peace. The only way we can have peace in a world that's so upside down today is through the power of the Holy Spirit, through Jesus Christ. And Lord, my prayer is that everyone who leaves today will have Jesus Christ in his heart, Father. Our life is hard enough without you, Jesus, but with you, you know, we can, we can make it, Lord, and we can be a witness and a testimony to the rest of the world who needs you. So, Father, as we get ready to celebrate the birth tomorrow, tonight, today, with the rest of our families, help us to remember that it's about nothing but you. The son that you gave so that we could live with you forever, Jesus. And all we have to do is believe, Father. So, Lord, thank you this morning. Thank you for the people that are here. I thank you for a worship team that worships you every time we step on this platform together, Father. The anointing that comes through us reaches everyone that's here. We praise you, Lord, in your precious name. Thank you, Father, for the offering. Distribute it as you will for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Christmas presents are exciting. Do you remember what you'd say is the best gift you've ever received at Christmas? I asked my kids this question, and here's what they said. My six-year-old loved her little talkie doll that could talk, blink, and not much else. It cost a whopping $110 after tax, and it lasted for a solid eight months before it found its way to the back of her closet. My nine-year-old said his favorite was the popular fantasy book series, six books in all, each getting progressively longer. The set cost $58 and lasted eight weeks before it lived its final dust-filled existence on a shelf. Now my tween loved the Brainy Putty collection that cost $32 and lasted a measly eight days before it went to live in our carpet. Finally, my teenage son wanted the ultimate drone with a 4K camera. It cost the most and lasted the shortest amount of time. I'd like to say it lasted eight minutes, but no, it was eight seconds, which is only impressive in bull riding. As exciting as those gifts are, what if there was a gift at Christmas that was far better? In fact, so much better that it makes these look like, well, toys. What if this gift was worth so much that no one could buy it for you, nor could you afford it? What if it was something of extreme value, like, say, life itself? And what if this gift was given through the birth of a baby who became our paid in full? That's the gift offered to all. It costs us nothing, him everything. It lasts just a bit longer than eight seconds, eight days, eight weeks, or even eight months. It lasts forever.
Just because it's Christmas doesn't mean there's peace on earth. Joy to all the world can be the hardest time of year. To see the stars. Thank you. A lot of volume out of that little girl. <laughs> All righty. Well, we're going to mix things up here a little bit. Thank you, praise team. They did a great job. Don't you like the porch? I want to go up there and sit in that rocking chair and preach, but better not do that. Oh, yeah, I got to stay awake is right. All right. Well, it's Christmas. Nancy told the first service that her favorite song, I think was the second or third one that we did, her favorite Christmas song. My favorite Christmas song I'm going to do tonight. 
It's called Christmas in Dixie. And that's what I'm going to be doing tonight. Yeah, we're going to do that. <laughs> Lord willing, if the voice after preaching all day stays the same, we'll be doing that. Well, I told you last week when we started this series uh, on enjoying the rest of your life <clears throat> that there were some difficult messages in that little series, and today is one of them. Because we're going to be talking about God's model for manhood. I told you before, now listen, if you came today to hear a safe Christmas message like you've heard your whole life about the travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem and no room in the inn and, you know, and so forth and the baby being born in the manger, it's all great stuff. And I've got a series of messages over the last 42 years that talk about the importance of that. In fact, tonight the message will be, why is Christmas so important? Um, but today, and I told you, I don't limit myself that I've got to preach a, a certain message on a certain day. Um, you know, it's whatever the Lord leads me to do. <clears throat> and I really feel that I needed to share this message today on God's model for manhood. Be in Philippians chapter two, when we talk about this today, I, I told you this last week, and I'm going to reiterate it. I am so proud of the men in this church and in, in a godly way. And I am so thankful for you, for you men that come and bring your family and sit with your family. And, and to me, that is, that is just such, it, it just does something to me inside to see the men. And as I told you, I go out after the first service and I go into the children's area and just seeing that congestion of men going out and men coming in with their families. And it just does something to me. And I really like it, love it, and appreciate it. Uh, ladies, this message, if you want to listen in, you can. Um, and if you want to say hallelujah, amen, if you want to do this every now and then, that'll be all right too. But I'm going to be talking about some things. It might be a little bit difficult um, for you to hear. But I think you know that what I'm telling you will be the truth. And I um, hope that you will take it from a heart that cares the world about you. There's four or five things in our culture today that really, really concern me. Four or five things that are happening in America. Uh, if I were to tell you what they were, you would agree one of the top five that bothers me is simply this. What is happening to masculinity in America? Really, really on my mind a lot. There's a book some years ago called Missing from Action, The Vanishing Manhood in America, written by Weldon Hardenbrook, good book. And I stole from him in your notes there the first four things that are listed. He takes these four different false images of a male and he lists them from like about the last 40 or 50 years and how it's led up to what we're dealing with today. And the first one he talks about is the, he calls it the macho maniac. Um, some of you may remember, and he, he went way back for this. How many of you remember Dirty Harry? Rambo? Charles Bronson, you know? 
These guys, they deny that they have any feelings. They, they ignore the law. They never worry. They never complain. They never apologize. They accomplish the impossible every eight seconds. Take whatever they want. Bully people if they want to. And he talks about how that has led up till today. And what we see on television and videos today with nothing but people wiping each other out, you know, blowing each other away, stupid stuff, people that are mechanical, that can fly and, you know, all this stuff. He talks about macho maniac. Secondly, he talks then about the great pretender. Some of you may remember all in the family and the Archie Bunker types. If you don't know, ask an older person, what does he mean by Archie Bunker? People who tried to build up their self-esteem by belittling everyone else, particularly their family and, and the wife. He kind of imagines that he rules the family, but really behind his back, everybody's ridiculing him, you know, making fun of him. The third type that he brings us now, getting closer up to today, of the last, he calls it about 20 years, is the world-class wimp. And these are, listen, you watch a, a, a sitcom, you watch these 30-minute hour-long movies or, or, or programs on TV, and you know that what I'm saying is true, they make the husband out to be dumb. He's outwitted by his family all the time. His kids, his wife, even his dog can outsmart him. You know, um, even one of my favorite of all times, as you know, is uh, Home Improvement. Well, Tim, the tool man, they do the same thing with him. You know, he's, he's made to be inept and everybody, you know, um, nobody takes him serious. We have that problem today. And then he brings us up to today. The fourth is the gender blender. And he takes you back to where we are today by talking about it. And here again, if I say something that offends you, I'm sorry, but I'm going to say it anyway. Michael Jackson, Boy George, people like that, that don't even pretend to be masculine. And he says what, we, what that has led to is today we have this complete reversal of identity and roles. And it's leading and has led to people wanting to approve and are approving in many states and, and areas of taking little kids, little kids, five-year-olds, kindergarten kids, and giving them drugs and giving them surgeries to change the way God made them. Gender blenders. I've got a message that I'm saving for about a month or two on, on how are we supposed to deal with the transgenderism thing that's going on how are we supposed to react? I've got a message for that that I'll, I'll bring. Well, what is the alternative to what we just talked about? What it's, folks, it's got to be God's way, God's model for manhood. Being a male is a matter of your birth, but being a man is a matter of choice. Paul gives us two examples in Timothy and Epaphroditus. In Philippians 2.20, Paul says this, and I'll refer to this at the very end of the message. He said, I have no one else like Timothy. And then referring to Epaphroditus, he says, hold men like him in the highest of honor, 
Guys, a man's greatness is not determined by the value of his wealth, but the wealth of his values. So I want, what I want to do is, is give you five values that God looks for in the life of a real man. And each one of these, you can come up with better probably instances than I can, but I just want to be able to illustrate them for you. But I'm going to give you these five, and if you would fill in some of the things that maybe come into your mind. But so here, here they are, and they all start with the letter C. We preachers like to do that. It looks like we're smart. I've told you before that I am not that smart. I don't sit in my office and make up outlines. I've got a book that thick on outlines. And I can look up any scripture and it'll tell me an outline or five or 10 for that. So don't think we're smarter than we are because we're really not. All right. But these are five values that God looks for in the life of a man. Number one may shock you guys, compassion. Then we're going to get a little more serious with this. Compassion. God is looking for men who will put people before prophets. And guys, when you get to the, near the end, you're going to find out that there is nothing more important or valuable than your relationships. You know, the Bible says, if I have not love, I am nothing. And Paul says at that same time, now abide these three, faith, hope, and love. It doesn't get much bigger in the Christian life than faith and hope. But what does he say? The greatest of these is love. You can be a success, guys, in everything else, but if you don't have love in your life, you're a failure. God is looking for men with compassion, men that are willing to protect the needs and the rights of other people. See, so often, and I know me, I'm just in it for myself, and I have to make myself at times reach out and care about what other people need or want. Timothy is a great example of this. Paul says in 2021, he is the only one who really cares about you. He said this to a whole church. Everyone else is concerned only with his own affairs, not about the cause of Christ. He says, look, Timothy is the only one I know about that cares about you more than he does himself. He was compassionate. Guys, is it possible to get so wrapped up in our life and maybe our business, whatever we do, that we, we do kind of forget the family, that can happen. The Phillips translation of that verse says about the, 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 the men in the church, they're all wrapped up in their own affairs. And I like what one preacher said about that. He said, the man who is all wrapped up in himself is not a daddy, he's a mummy. Got it? All wrapped up? You, you don't get that, do you? Okay. A good example of the man of compassion is the one I preached on about three months ago, the good Samaritan in the gospel of Luke. Remember, on a quickly business trip from Jerusalem to Jericho, and along the road, he finds somebody, a, a victim that's been mugged, and he stops, and he administers first aid he takes him on his own animal down to the local Holiday Inn Express, gives him a gold card, says, charge it to my account. Compassion for a total stranger. Guys, 
God is looking for men like us. You feel in the way, but we need to be men of compassion. That doesn't mean we're feminine. Men of compassion. Secondly, God needs men of consistency. Consistency. Men who will put character before conformity. Men who are not, listen guys, men who are not afraid to be different from the culture around us. And all the culture around us today is telling us the wrong things about a godly life. So we've got to be very careful. Listen, I, I have learned to scrutinize everything I hear or see on television or Sirius XM or whatever it may be. Even my uh, focus on the family and all them other things that I listen to. Scrutinize everything that you hear. Paul says in verse uh, 22, Timothy has proved himself. He has served with me in the work of the gospel. That word there, proved, means tested character. Timothy's character has been tested. He did not give in to pressure. Men, you all know the saying that if you don't stand for something, what? You'll fall for anything. What are you willing to stand for in your life? You know, we need men of conviction who in this church who cannot be bought at any price to change their mind about the things in the word of God. And men who are consistent in their belief and consistent in their convictions. So many men today are half committed to everything and not totally committed to anything. Proverbs 10, 9, the man of integrity walks securely, but he who takes crooked paths will be found out. Guys, the bottom line for manhood is integrity. Listen, a, a nice personality makes a good first impression. But guys, let me, can I tell you something as an older man for a lot of you? Success over the long haul is built on your character and your integrity, not on your image. The man of integrity in this room will not be afraid of what might be found out or exposed in their life. Is your private life consistent with your public image and your public life? Proverbs 27, I read this and it really almost, I do, it makes tears well up. It is a wonderful heritage to have an honest father. Man, I had one. After he got saved, I mean, he was a quiet kind of a man. He wasn't the kind that just blurted out and everything, you know, hallelujah all the time. But he was consistent. He had character. He had integrity. And the day he died was just like the day I knew him when I met him as a baby. Men, God is looking for men who are honest. All right. Compassion. Consistency. Here's another one. Cooperation. Then we'll get to two of the hardest. Cooperation. What do you mean? 
men who will put cooperation before competition. See, Paul recognized that even he could get more accomplished if he worked together with other people. So in verse 25, he said, I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother. What else did he call him? Fellow worker. What else did he call him? Fellow soldier. See, he describes something in three terms, three relationships. He said, this guy in the church that I work with, he's my brother, he's my worker, and he's a fellow soldier. Let's write down, guys, these three things about the Christian life. Number one, it is a family. Called him a brother. Guys, all of you in here that you know you're born again, you're my brother. We're related. And really, if I understand Scripture in a closer way than blood, we're related by the Lord God. And a hundred and I want to find it here. So, I, oh yeah, hundred and thirty-three times in the New Testament, Paul uses the word brother to describe the relationship between Christians. We're a family, ladies. You can come into the family too. You're a family. Number two, it's a fellowship. In other words, we all have got the same assignment, guys. We're, we, we have the great commission. We're to serve together in, in this local body to do what we can to get the gospel to people. Here's another one that you may not want to hear, but it's also a fight. We're in a fight. Guys, when you became, someone may be, never told you this, but when you became a Christian, you became an enemy of the devil. I mean, he didn't like you before, but he was happy because you weren't saved. But now that you're saved, you are his enemy. And we are supposed to defend each other, protect each other, support each other, because life's a battle. Why do you think almost every song anymore that we sing is about how hard it can be, you know, and how God can get us through it? I read from Focused on the Family that their idea was that only 10% of men have real friends because they don't know how to relate to each other. Could other Christian men use those terms about me and you? That we're a family, we, we fight together, we have fellowship together. Judges 20, 11 says, so all the men of Israel got together and united as one man against the city. They fought together. And I'm going to tell you something. When the men in this church, if we all got united for one task for the glory of God, nothing can stop this church. That's the way it is. You know, as I told you, I, you know, I'm out there in that hallway after the service, and I see those men coming and going with their kids, and they've got their kids by the hand, and some are coming in, and some are going out, and man, I just get like, I don't know, ha, 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 you know, like Tim Toolman does. It just does something to me. About three weeks ago, I sent a letter to about 12 to 14, I believe, different pastors a personal letter to them of other churches from me. And I said, I want you to know that I pray for you every week, once a week. And I want you to know that we're not in competition with you. And I know that you love the Lord. 
we may have different doctrines on baptism and a couple of other things, but I know you preach Christ and him crucified. And I know that you try to get people saved and I know you try to get them to live a godly life. And I, I just said, I want you to know that I love you as a brother and I'm praying for you. Cooperation. I'd never done that in 42 years of ministry. And I just felt led by the Lord that I needed to do that. So there's um, compassion, there's consistency, there's cooperation. And the last two men are biggies for commitment. You've got to have commitment. God is looking for men who will put Christ before their comfort. Who will put Christ before their comfort. See, Paul says of Epaphroditus, he is your messenger whom you sent to take care of my needs. He was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him. See, Paul is in prison in Rome, and the people 800 miles away in Philippi take up an offering to help Paul in his expenses. Again, 800 miles away and took about six weeks to travel over rough terrain. And evidently, Epaphroditus volunteered to take it for him. And on the way there, don't know what happened, caught a disease, got infected, whatever, but it was deadly. And he almost died, but he was persistent in that pain. You remember the sermon series we just finished on having a staying faith? Men of faith that will get you to the end, not just what you do in the beginning, but all the way to the end. So many, listen, ladies are in this too, but so many men, we're great starters, but we don't finish what we started. And a lot quit in ministry. Why? Because it becomes inconvenient or it becomes expensive or uncomfortable or it requires effort. Ministry always costs. And God is looking for men who are willing to pay the price. James 2, 17 says, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. He is looking for men of action. Focus on the family also said this week that the number one complaint from Christian, Christian wives is passive husbands. Aggressive at work, aggressive in their hobby, but abdicate their leadership in spiritual matters. I think that's probably pretty common. God, men, wants you to become active. Spiritual awakenings that we're praying for, revivals, whatever you want to call it, I believe occur when men get right with God and lead their family to get right with God. Commitment. And number five, courage. We need men of courage. Men who will put serving God before security. Folks, listen, the Bible talks about planning and planning for your retirement, for your future. There is nothing wrong with that. There's everything right about that. But today's value system says do everything you can to, to build up that nest egg as big as you can get it. And your whole goal in life is to become secure and financially independent. Folks, listen, 
God is looking for men with some courage. Listen, God wants us to still take some risk for the kingdom of God, not to get to a place to where we say, I got it made now and I don't need to do anything. In verse 29 and 30, um, it says, Paul says, welcome him, Epaphroditus, in the Lord with great joy and honor, men like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking, risking his life to make up for the help that you could not give me. In the Greek, the word risking literally means hazarding your life. Guys, you'll like this also. It's a gambling term that means you risk everything with one roll of the dice. He says that's what Epaphroditus was doing. He risked his life and almost died for the work of Christ. Why? To make up for the help that the Philippian church couldn't give to Paul. I'm not being critical of any particular church or any particular person, but I get emails every day, Sunday, not so many, but emails every day from other churches, from other pastors. Most of them I don't even know, but they, you know, they want something, they want to tell you something or get something or you participate in something. And I get those all the time. And I get the idea because what I'll do, be honest about it, is I'll start Googling. I'll Google that person or that church and find out what I can about it. Folks, so many churches today are filled with a wimp religion. I mean, there's no, they have a, you know, they say we love the Lord and I'm, they probably do. And they talk about the love of Christ and that they do it by giving out, you know, food and they have a place for people to get food and they, you know, they do, they do good things in the community like that. But when you read their doctrine and you read what they say they believe and what they promote, again, not to offend anybody in here, but pastors need to tell people the truth. And I need to tell you this, because I don't know what you've heard, and I don't know where you stand or what you believe, but I'm just going to say it. The Pope is wrong again. He's wrong again. You do not bless same-sex marriages. And the hypocrisy is, he orders the people in the church, the priest, you can not do it, you can't do it, but you can bless it. In other words, I can't, they can't do the actual ceremony, but they can bless it once it's done. How hypocritical is that? That's not right. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul says, So then, my brothers, because of God's great mercy to us, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice to God, dedicated to his service and pleasing to him. Now, the next verse is as plain as day. Don't conform to the standards of the world, but let God transform you. That means metamorphosis, complete change inwardly by a complete change of your mind. He says, men, he says, don't accept the world standard for manhood. Offer yourself. What have you offered yourself and volunteered for the cause of Christ? What are you sacrificing 
for the cause of Christ. You know, Paul writing this to the Romans, they were Jewish, but they were in Rome. And they knew what a sacrifice was. They knew that a sacrifice was put on the altar and that the blood was shed. They knew that. But this says, offer yourselves, and he puts an adjective. What kind of sacrifice? Living. Living. A living sacrifice. A couple of things I could say about that, but what I want to say today is this. A living sacrifice can crawl off the altar. The other ones couldn't. They killed them right there. They stayed there. You know what that means to me is so many times we, as men and women, we come to church and we say, you know, I want to give God, I want to give you everything. And we crawl up on the altar. But Monday or Tuesday, we crawl off when it gets hard or difficult. Mark 8, 35, the words of Jesus. Only those who give away their lives for my sake and for the sake of the good news will ever know what it means to really live. You want to really live? Go broke for Christ. Give up your life. Give up your reputation. You know, about, I think I figured out after the first service from 2024 back to the 1930s, about eight, a little 80 plus years, there was a man named Nikolai Lenin. Some of you may remember Lenin. He talked to a group of 12 to 14 people and said, and I'm quoting, you give me 100 totally committed men and I'll change the world. Well, you know what? Evidently he got them because according to even the United Nations, which I don't believe half of what comes out of there, but what they said was about two-thirds of the world is under communism or some form of communism. That's the power of commitment. Second Chronicles 16, 9, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth that he may show himself strong in the heart of those whose heart is perfect toward him. God is looking for people to use. Guys, he's looking for men of compassion, consistency, cooperation, commitment, and courage. And again, it's kind of tragic to me when I go back to the beginning and read where Paul said, I have nobody else like Timothy. Out of all the men there in Rome and church, I have no one like him. Guys, one of the major conflicts in homes is passive husbands in the area of spiritual things. And we talk to ladies, I, I couldn't begin to number them over 42 years, who would say something like, you know, I want to grow. I want to get involved. I want to grow spiritually, but my husband just doesn't want to. And he's kind of jealous of all what I'm doing and the time I'm spending. Guys, one of the greatest challenges you will ever face. Are you listening? Is everybody listening? One of the greatest challenges that you will ever face in your life is to live for the Lord in front of your family consistently. T. 
Timothy and Epaphroditus, just ordinary guys. They're not super biblical stars. But here we are 2,000 years later still talking about them. I was doing another, another funeral this last week, Thursday evening. And every time now for a long time I've been, I started thinking about ministry, my ministry. And all those years. And there's not a funeral that I do that I don't think about my own mortality. And how brief life is. And I'm driving home Thursday night and I'm thinking, you know, 40 years ago when I was a much younger man, I would be thinking after a funeral, what am I going to be feeling like in 40 years? Then I caught myself, what am I going to be feeling like in 30 years? And then it was, what am I going to be like in 20 years? And now it's, what am I going to my life be like in 10 years? We don't have a lot of time. Guys, it goes like that. So make the decision today that you're going to live for the Lord. And we're going to be an example of manhood in this church and in this community. Let's pray. Just going to play a little soft music and ask you men and women to pray. Guys, to pray about what you've heard today. I'm not going to repeat it. You know what it is. Just And I know we fail. I fail in my family at times. I don't do it all just right. But I want to keep coming back, coming back. That's what I'm asking you to do. You're not going to be a perfect daddy or a perfect husband. They're not out there. But you can be consistent. And you can be compassionate. With courage, commitment, cooperation. God bless you. Thank you for being here. I hope you have a great afternoon, and we'd love to have you back at 6.30. Promise you, you'll be out of here by 7.30 and go home and do whatever you need to do, but we'd love to see you back. We're going to have a great program, and so please come and be with us. 6.30 tonight. God bless you. Have a good day. Eat a lot of food. Could have stepped into creation